We looked at the fruit of the Spirit, and those are things that are produced in us by the working of the Holy Spirit. And once we come to Jesus and we're born again, the Holy Spirit's in us, and he's working inside us to produce all of the fruits of the Spirit. The works of the flesh, we don't need to work at producing them. We have the flesh by way of Adam and Eve's sin. Uh, We have it through birth. It's in our spiritual DNA. And as we look at these works of the flesh, they're going to seem really familiar to us because in a lot of ways, we struggle with all of them. Amen, first service? Don't clam up on me now. But... We're breaking these down into categories. I'm going to read verses 18 uh, through 21 in just a minute out of Galatians 5. And then we're going to look at the second batch of uh, things that become out of control when our flesh is not given to the Lord because our flesh needs to be controlled. So, Father, we thank you this morning for this sermon series. We thank you for all of these truths that you are making uh, evident to us by the Holy Spirit. Help us. Uh, Lord, to partner with the Spirit as He works in us to conform us to the image of Christ, to produce uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit in us. But Lord, when we see the outcroppings of the flesh, we want to understand it and be able to have dominion over it and crucify it, God, because we want to be pleasing to you. So let this come alive to us this morning, I prayed in Jesus' name, and the church said. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That's good news. The law just convicts and gives us the knowledge of sin. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, and witchcraft. We covered all of those. Last week, we covered the next three, which I call emotions out of control, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. This week, we're going to cover what I call pride out of control, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, that's for next week, and things like these. And this little disclaimer at the bottom, for which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice, say practice, such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's one thing to struggle with sin. It's another thing to give ourselves over to sin. It's one thing to say, I have a problem with alcohol. It's another thing to say, I drink as much as I can, as often as I can, because I like it. Did I hit too close to home on Sunday morning? Uh, But the the key word there is practice. So all of us struggle with sin, say amen. amen. But we shouldn't give ourselves over to it. Why? Because when we give ourselves over to it as a lifestyle, it's... It's a sign that we're not born again, that we're not in fellowship with Jesus, and it puts our souls in eternal jeopardy. So the three that we're looking at here today, we looked at emotions out of control, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, and that was the last time we were in this text together. Uh, This week, we're going to uh, identify exactly what our flesh produces when our pride is out of control. Say pride. Pride's a fun topic to talk about in church, isn't it? It's something that we all struggle with. None of us like to admit. In fact, most of you, when I say pride, you look at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. But let's define pride because this whole session, when we take a look at these workings of the flesh, selfish ambition, dissensions, 
factions, when we take a look at those things, they're going to be rooted in pride and we need to know some things about pride or at least be refreshed in what we know about pride. First, let's start with a definition. What is pride? The most common Hebrew word translated pride in the Old Testament describes both a disposition and a type of conduct. So when you see pride in the Old Testament, it's generally this one Hebrew word and it's talking about a, a disposition. So when you see a proud person, it's like it's, the, it's who they are. If you've ever met someone who's proud, I mean, and it's not that every once in a while they get worked up, they get lathered up. They're just a proud person. You know, the kind of people that they've always got to be right. They always know everything. You know, their posture even gives them away. They put their nose in the air. Have you ever seen people like that? I've actually seen it. Like, there, There's pictures of people. What are you looking at? Pride this morning. It's a disposition. It's a posture. It's something that encapsulates a person's personality. And when the Hebrew talks about it in the Old Testament, it's talking about not only a disposition, but a type of conduct. The proud person is always spoken about. Now, a proud, presumptuous person is cynical, and they are categorically insensitive to the needs of others. How do you know if a person's proud? They don't care anything about you. They don't care to hear how you're doing. They don't want to hear you talk. The only opinion they want to hear is their opinion coming out of your mouth and they'll talk and pontificate and go on and on for hours and yet if you try to say you can't get a word in edgewise with a proud person that proud person is cynical they're insensitive they're presumptuous they're narcissistic it's all about them the proud person is a sinful person you know and we're going to look at the fact that in some ways the world celebrates pride. And in some way the, the world affirms pride. But the truth is, as Christians, we need to understand the proud person is a sinful person. And you say, well, why? At the root of it, the sin is this. Their ultimate confidence is in themselves and not in God. When we're proud, we're saying, I don't need God. I don't need you. I don't need help. I can do this all myself. People have been offered salvation, offered the gospel, offered a relationship with Christ. I don't need that. I don't want that. Uh, I don't want your religion. I don't want your Jesus. I can do it all myself. I'm a good person. Come on, let's have fun with it, first service. And that proud person, really at the essence of what their issue is, is that their ultimate confidence is in themselves. And our ultimate confidence, as we know as believers, cannot be in ourselves because we're so flawed and we're so fallible and we're so often wrong that our confidence has to be in God. It has to be in Christ Jesus. So the Old Testament, when you see that word proud, when you see a proud person described in Proverbs and uh, Psalms, it is that sinful disposition of having ultimate confidence in self. The New Testament uses a Greek word, hyperephanos. Hyperephanos means haughty and arrogant. So when you see pride in the New Testament, it's probably this compound Greek word, hyperephanos, and it means a haughty, arrogant person. The New Testament consistently warns that the proud person makes themselves a target of God's resistance and wrath. Did you hear what I just said? 
It's not that they make themselves, you know, socially unacceptable. Not that they make themselves, you know, the, the person that nobody wants to be around. They actually put a target on themselves for God to resist them. The proud person actually, uh, you know, gets the ire of God to the point where he pours his wrath out on them. Why is that? Because God's a big meanie and he, you know, he has to put everybody in their place? No, because God knows that pride will kill their soul for eternity. Unless they come to the end of themselves and bow the knee to Jesus, they're going to be lost in their pride. And so Hyperate, Phanos, the haughty, arrogant person, they are, as in the Old Testament, a sinful person, but they actually put a target on their lives for God to resist them and for God to pour out his wrath against them. We're going to look at more scriptures, but let's continue by asking the question, who has pride? So we've given an Old Testament, New Testament kind of working definition of pride, but who has pride? And the answer is... Every created being has the capacity to express pride. Every created being, and you say, well, why do you say that? Why don't you just say everybody? Well, because I want you to know angels have the capacity to express pride. In fact, there was a particular angel named Lucifer who was the director of worship in heaven who expressed pride in such a way that it got him cast out of heaven. And he was stripped of his glory and he, be, he went from the worship leader in heaven, Lucifer, to being stripped and now he's Satan. He's the one who opposes God, opposes the church. And how did he get there? He got there through pride. But he was an angel. He was a created thing. He stood in the presence of God. How could he exhibit pride? Everything created has the potential to express pride. When Satan expressed pride, he articulated it like this. I will be like the most high. I will be like God. Wow. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Boom. Boom. That one expression of pride cost him his reflected glory, his position in heaven, his standing among the created angels. Everything created has the capacity to express pride. Enter pride into the human situation. Adam and Eve are made in the image of God, perfect in all their ways, walking in the garden, no sin, no trouble, no problems, yet the one who fell, Lucifer, who is Satan, tempts them, and what does he say? Did not God say you will do? God didn't say that. God's trying to hold you back. He throws these little things at them to make them question the intentions of God and what? They rise up in pride. Well, I'm going to eat that. I want to be like God. Wow. And then pride enters into the human race and sadly it is now passed on to everyone who draws breath who's born of woman that we in our spiritual DNA there is pride every human being born of woman has the original sin and we have pride we struggle with it it's our inherent weakness so who has pride all of us have pride who struggles with pride all of us struggle with pride what should we do with our pride I'm going to give you permission to do something that you shouldn't otherwise do in a lot of situations. Does that sound exciting to anyone? You guys are dead this morning. Come on, clap your hands a little bit. You have a rough night last night? Was there something on TV I missed? 
So what should we do with our pride? Here's the permission to do something that you shouldn't normally do. Rebel against pride. All you rebels out there. All you rebels without a clue. All you people that take the opposite side of everything. This is your chance. When it comes to pride, rebel against it. Refuse it. Say, I don't, want it. I don't want it in my life. Push it out. Just, you know, get aggressive against it. Rebel against pride and embrace humility. That's what we should do with our pride. We shouldn't make excuses for it. We shouldn't make a pet out of it. We, we shouldn't say, well, everybody deals with it. No, we should rebel against our pride and embrace humility. Submitting ourselves to God and refusing to provoke him. You see, because pride provokes God. We should never want to provoke God. Do you ever meet people who like to provoke others? All right, married people, just look straight ahead right now. Don't just look at me. You'll be safe if you look at me. But some people just like to pick. They just like to pick at your skibs. They like to push your buttons, as it said, right? They like to trigger you. Why? Because their pride likes to incite you, likes to have control over you. And, you know, what we should do with pride is we should humble ourselves and rebel against it, but we've got to be careful not to provoke God. Listen to what James 4, 6 through 7 says. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You see that? This little text here saying what? God opposes the proud. God is defiant against the proud. The proud put a target on their lives. When I say, God, I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I can do it myself. I put a target on my life and I provoke God. So we submit ourselves to God. We embrace humility and we don't provoke God. You can provoke a whole lot of people, but I would not recommend provoking God. Number two, the second thing we should do with our pride is this. Embrace healthy accountability from those in the Lord above us. All of us need to have people in our lives that can check us. All of us need accountability. Well, pastor, I want to get to the place in life where no one can tell me what to do. Good luck. That place does not exist. Young people think, "When when I get out of my house, I'm going to do whatever I want. Good luck. Young man said, I'm tired of living at home. I'm tired of being told what to do. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to join the army. I'll show them. (laughs) There's always somebody telling us what to do. There's always somebody above us in the Lord. There's always somebody we have to answer to. Why does it have to be that way? Because we need that. And if there is nobody that we have to answer to, I mean, if, you know, we have to answer to God in the final analysis about everything. We're given an account for every word that we speak, every thought that we think. Wow. Well, that was enough. Let's just go home. Huh? So what should we do with our pride? We should be careful not to provoke God. Why? Because he resists the proud. What should we do with our pride? We should embrace healthy accountability by those over us in the Lord. Listen to 1 Peter 5.5. 5. 
You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Did you hear that? So powerful. Young people, it speaks directly to the young men. Why? Because they're the future leaders in the kingdom here that God's trying to speak to. Uh, It also applies to young women. It applies to everyone. But young people, I'll say it that way, likewise, subject yourself to your elders. Why? Because they've lived longer. They know a couple things you don't know and because that's God's order and God's structure if we rebel against God's order and God's structure that's pride and God will resist us you younger people likewise be subjected to your elders and all of you clothe yourself with humility there it is it's a choice put it on like a garment toward one another because God is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble So we've defined what pride is. We've shown who has it, every created being, angels, Adam and Eve, all of us born of a woman. If you weren't born of a woman, you can come see me after service and we'll give you a special dispensation. I don't know how that works. (laughs) And some of you still didn't crack. It's like statues this morning. All right, so let's move on here. Galatians 5 describes pride out of control. That's what we're talking about. We looked at emotions out of control, pride out of control, three ways, selfish ambition, dissension, and factions. We're gonna try and cover those this morning. The King James adds these words, strife, seditions, and heresies. We're gonna get a conglomeration of all of those words to get a working understanding of what the scripture's talking about here. The first out... You know, the first display of pride out of control is this, selfish ambition. Say ambition. Ambition. Say selfish. Selfish. Right out of the box, ambition is almost always, in fact, I tried to think of a time where it was a good thing, but it's almost always a bad thing for the Christian soul. You and I categorically should probably not be ambitious. It's quiet now because the world's told us we should be, and I'm gonna to get to that in a minute. But we shouldn't have, well, I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do that, and I'm gonna build a, you know, an empire, and I'm gonna be rich, and I'm gonna build a great church, and I'm gonna be, uh, you know, the, the, I'm gonna be famous. That junk has crept into the ministry for a long time. Yes. And we've made Christian celebrities and idols out of ministers and, 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 you know, all the trappings of pride come along with that and all the trappings of selfish ambition come along with that. But being ambitious is not healthy for the Christian soul. And the word selfish is actually attached here, which makes it even worse. Selfish ambition. As if we, if we could find a case where ambition was a good thing, like I want to advance the kingdom of God. I want to, I want to do what God's called me to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm really focused on it to the point where I'm almost ambitious. But realize most of the time when we're ambitious, that's not the kind of ambition we have. It's selfish ambition to puff ourselves up or to reward ourselves or to enrich ourselves. And it's something that categorically should not be part of the Christian life. Why? Because selfish ambition is not of God. It is a work of the flesh. It is not a work of the spirit. Having a strong desire, here's what ambition is, and you know, add the word selfish to it to compound it. 
Ambition is having a strong desire for success, achievement, power, wealth, and fame. There's a sense of drivenness in there. You could say the definition like this, driven to succeed, driven to achieve, driven to get power, wealth, and fame. Do you feel how you know, unhealthy it is to be driven? God does not drive his sheep. He leads his sheep. The enemy drives us. And if we're driven in life, it's a sure sign that the enemy is involved driving us by our pride to achieve, to, to, to do things, to uh, amass things that are unhealthy for us. Pride out of control is displayed in selfish ambition. Ambition is that strong drive, that desire to succeed, to achieve, to have power, wealth, and fame. The Greek word for ambition here is aretheia. And, and this is what it means, a mercenary or self-seeking person. Did you hear that? You know what a mercenary is? They get paid to fight battles that are not even their own. A mercenary, someone, a hired gun, someone who's just in it for the reward, for the money, for, uh, for the thrill. A mercenary or self-seeking person, listen, who's driven for their own personal gain regardless of the discord it sows. Wow. The ambitious person doesn't care who they step on to achieve their ambition. The ambition person doesn't care who they wrong to get to where they want to be. The, ambition per, the ambitious person doesn't care about the strife that they sow. That's why the King James mixes that word strife in there. It's selfish ambition causing strife, causing trouble, causing drama, hurting people along the way. Arethia, a mercenary or self-seeking person. You know what the truth is? Maybe none of us are you know, like this to the point of being a, a caricature, but we all know people like this. We've all worked, if you work in the business world, you know people like this. They'll squash you, step on you, betray you, stab you in the back to get on top and pass you over. They're in our schools, they're in our offices, they're in our neighborhoods, and sadly, they're in our churches. Selfish ambition. We see a lot of selfish ambition in the world, and the world applauds it. In fact, they celebrate the ambitious person who achieves success. They celebrate the ambitious person who becomes famous and wealthy. And what do they do? They put them on a pedestal and they worship them, as it were. While the world celebrates the ambitious person, it simultaneously ignores the isolation and emptiness that ambition costs. And they ignore the failure rate of the ambitious do you know most ambitious people never accomplish their ambitions? I don't know about you, but when you spend your whole life trying to do something and it doesn't work out, that's pretty soul-destroying, isn't it? See what the enemy loves to do? Give us this, this unhealthy, impractical, unattainable goal and make us pour everything in it only to fail. Ambition creates unrealistic expectations. Ambition is based on a self-inflated view that we think more of ourselves than we ought. So I want you to see the deceptive nature of ambition. They're unrealistic expectations. Well, I expect that everyone's going to like me and be nice to me and, and, and genuflect when I walk in the room. <laughs> Do you think that 
you, you're going to see that happen? No. It's unrealistic. And we, we set these unrealistic goals for ourselves. And we have these unrealistic expectations of other people. And it's not healthy for us. Why? Because we're going to be disappointed in the long run. Ambition slowly melts away our ambitions when they're not realized you know slowly our our the bar gets lowered and it often progresses like this you know when you're when you're a little boy well i want to be like dad and then the next thing is well i want to be famous and then the next thing is well i want to be rich and and i want to you know i want to be uh, the talk of the town and all of these things we puff ourselves up to the point there then all of a sudden we realize that's not going to happen how many have got to the place in life where you've realized some of the things you thought were going to happen are not going to happen. It's a tough crowd this morning. I'll get you back. I preach four hours next week and lock the doors. You get to this place in life where you realize, man, all the hopes and all the things, all the puffed up, inflated ideas I had about myself. I remember meeting this one guy. He was a shell of a man, and he was... He had given himself over to drugs and alcohol to the point where he was literally just broken down. And he looked me in the eye and he said, I always felt like I was destined for greatness. My heart broke because he was so many rungs below average at that point that those dashed dreams and hopes are soul crushing. What are they the byproduct of? Ambition unrealistic expectations. We see a lot of selfish ambition in the world and the world applauds it. Those who climb the corporate ladder, the political ladder, the social ladder, they step over others and rung by rung, they're told to feel no remorse for their selfish actions. But in the end, it is soul crushing. It is potential destroying to be selfish and ambitious. And God warns us, it's a work of the flesh. For the Christian, the end never justifies the means in life. Well, I got here, but you don't know why, want to know how I got here. The end never justifies the means for us. In fact, how we get there is actually more important than if we get there and what we get. God is watching how we conduct ourselves. God is watching how we treat others. And, and, and people say, well, you know, they were horrible and karma caught up with them. There's no such thing as karma. The Bible says whatever you sow, you will reap. It's about sowing and reaping this morning. Amen. If I see one more Christian post about karma, I'm coming to your house. I'm busy now. It's hunting season. But when it's over, I got a list. I'm coming. The end never justifies the means. I mean, think about it. How we get there, God is perfecting us. He's working on us. He's conforming us to the image of Christ, not in the world. They kill, steal, destroy, betray all the way. But as long as they get there, they feel like a winner. In the end, that's not winning at all. Success, achievement, power, wealth, and fame should have zero appeal to those of us who love Jesus. We should never be in it for the money. We should never be in it for the notoriety. We should never be in it because people will see us. We ne should never be in it to, to achieve success. Amen. Let's never forget that we are bondservants. We're bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? We serve on behalf of another. 
It's not about Rick. It's not about Rick building his kingdom, using his gifts, being celebrated, reward. No, it's not about that. It's all about serving Jesus for me, and it's all about serving Jesus for you. And selfish ambition has no place in the life of a believer. Number two, the second display of pride out of control is described in the word dissensions, and the King James says seditions. It's interesting. Uh, sedition's a word we've heard a lot about as uh, people in politics try and paint others as seditious. If you know what that's all about, they accuse people of sedition on January 6th. What's the big deal? We don't hear this word sedition. All of a sudden, sedition, 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 we hear it all the time. Well, if you look in the Constitution, you can never run for office again if you're convicted of sedition. So this is all about disqualifying people from voting or holding office by a trumped-up charge of sedition. And here the word sedition is used in the King James to describe, uh, uh, you know, flesh that's out of control, pride that's out of control. So let's take a look at what dissensions and seditions are. The second byproduct of pride out of control is manifest in dissension or sedition. The King James uh, uses the word sedition, and it means the incitement or, or resistance of insurrection against lawful authority. So it's an applicable word uh, for you know what we're looking at here. But basically, it's when people rebel or resist or try to tear down uh, lawful authority. So uh, think about it in this way. You know, if, if God puts someone in charge, God puts a government in charge, God puts a pastor in charge, God puts someone in charge in the home, and there are those who try to usurp and destroy and negate their authority and, and to dissolve it, that is dissension, that is sedition. A dissentious, seditious person manufactures division because they love to pull things apart that God has put together. In fact, the definition of sedition literally means the pulling apart of something. That word sedition means to pull, to rip, to tear apart. And the person who has that dissentious spirit, they love to manufacture division. Why? Because what their desire is, is they want to pull apart the things God has put together. Dissension or sedition is a big deal. Why? Because unity is a big deal. You and I have been given the gift of unity in the body of Christ. Yet there are those within the church and without, from outside of the church that would love to destroy the unity that God gave us. Amen. And they have a dissentious spirit and they like to make trouble and they like to stir up dramas and they like to bring division and they like to split things. Yep. And God says, that's not a work of the spirit. That's a work of the flesh to have those who love sedition and love dissension and love to cause trouble and love to pull apart things God has put together. It's a big deal because unity is a big deal. John 17, 22 through 23, the glory which you have given me, I also have given to them, Jesus speaking, so that they may be one as we are one. Listen to Jesus talking to the Father, talking about the church. What was his desire that he expresses to his Father God? I want them to be one as we are one. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfect in unity so that the world may know that you 
sent me and you love me just as you love me. So Jesus is saying, I want there to be unity in the church. Why? Because it reflects on the relationship the church has with Christ. It reflects on the relationship that we have with God the Father. And it also displays to the world who Jesus is. When, dis- when unity is destroyed in the body of Christ, it's just, you know, the people look at the church and the world and they're like, I don't want any part of that. Those people are crazy. Look at them. They're fighting. They're, you know, they're worse than us. So our unity is important and our unity is under attack and dissension and sedition is how it's attacked. Dissension is a big deal because it destroys our most precious relationships it destroys important relationships in our lives. A dissentious spirit divides people, divides the races, and divides nations. What's behind racism? A dissentious, seditious spirit that likes to pull apart and divide, to divide the races where God made us all. We have one father. We're all made in the image of God. We're we're all alike, yet the enemy likes to bring division and separate us to destroy unity, to pull apart. It's what he does. He does it with people. He does it with races. He does it in the nations. We see the national divisions. We see the ethnic divisions. We see divisions uh, in our own communities. What's behind that? Dissension. It's pride. The spirit loves, this spirit of dissension loves to do a couple things. One, and I've seen it operate over the years. I've seen it operate in the church. Dissension is a spirit. And when it gets on a person, it's ugly. And if you've ever seen a person operate in a dissentious, seditious spirit, they're trying to attack and undermine leadership. They're trying, and it might be subtle. Oh, you know, it's subtle like the, the enemy in the garden. Oh, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? You know, is the pastor really the only one you should listen to? Does he really have your best interest in mind? Why should he make all the decisions? You know, why don't you come over here with me and we, you know, we can seek the Lord together. You guys, any of you guys heard that before? It sounds like this. I can smell it a mile away. I've had it march in here and I've sent it right back out. Dissension. It divides people, races, nations. The spirit of dissension loves to fracture families, to sow strife in families, brother against brother, mother against father, children against parents. That is a dissentious, seditious spirit. It loves to fracture families and listen more than anything else that I've seen. The dissentious spirit loves to destroy marriages. Often those who operate in a Jezebel spirit will be operating in a spirit of sedition and, sed- and they, they attack leadership. But what do they do? They weasel their way into people's relationships and they destroy marriages. And I've seen it in the church for decades. We need to be very careful about who we let speak into our life, speak into our marriages. We need to make sure they're God-ordained leadership and that they support God-ordained leadership and that they don't subtly attack leadership. Leadership's not always right, but it's always leadership. When leadership's wrong, God will correct it. So dissension, sedition, 
big problems. They cause all kinds of drama. They bring division. They destroy unity. They fracture the most important relationships. Now, I want to say something. You're always going to find dissension in legalistic religious circles. If you've ever been in a legalistic church where you got to look a certain way, you got to cut your hair a certain way, you got to wear certain clothes, you can't do this, you can't do that, you know, legalism, you know, you know what it's about. If you don't, you know, study it, I preach about it constantly. But when you're in a legalistic church where, you know, there's this control and there's, there's this centralized authority and there's no move of the Holy Spirit and, and, and God's not allowed, Come on. Come on. that's all about pride. Yeah. You got people standing behind a pulpit that are afraid of what the Holy Spirit will do if the Holy Spirit gets loose. That's a, a problem that has to do with dissension. And it's rooted in pride. But you're always going to find sedition and dissension in legalistic religious service, uh, circles. Listen to Acts 23.7. And when he, had said, when he had so said, there rose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. Look at that. The two ultra-legalistic groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees, what do they have? They have a loss of unity. They are divided, and they attack each other. And what's the byproduct of that? Look, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. When the leadership is falls prey to dissension, the sheep are scattered and they're confused. Yes. And that's why the enemy loves it. So be aware of these things. They are works of the flesh. Be insightful in being able to smell them or see them or recognize them. Why? Because they're the little foxes in the body of Christ that will destroy important relationships. Even the most sincere believers are not immune to dissension. Acts 15.2, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, say what? Did you guys hear that? Yeah. Yeah. Paul, the greatest apostle who ever lived, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. His wingman here, they have a, you know, Barnabas, the one who's on the missionary journeys with him, his, his, his co-laborer. They had what? No small dissension and disputation with them. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. So they have dissension. We, we know at some point Paul has dissension to the point where it breaks rank and that, you know, there's a split in the ministry and now there's two teams. So I'm just pointing out here that dissension, division, all of these things, none of us are immune to them. We never become, you know, above it to the point where it can't hook us. Why? Because it's rooted in pride. And if someone can lather you up and inflame your pride a little bit, they can suck you into their dissension and they can use you to effectuate division. Let's move on this morning. The last one we're going to look at here today are factions or heresies. So we understand that pride out of control will give us this selfish ambition. It will create seditions and dissensions to destroy unity. But the last outworking of pride out of control is rooted in the production of factions and heresies. Now, factions are the last display of pride out of control that the text warns us about. 
this is a manifestation of pride, and it does include elements of dissension and secession, uh, sedition. So these build upon each other. But I want you to see the main difference here. When we say dissensions, yeah, it destroys unity. It brings division. But factions have everything to do with division that occurs on theological grounds. So this is where people use theology or their interpretation of Scripture to shatter the church and to split it. That's what factions are about. How many have ever been in a church that had a split in it? Hands going up all over the place. It is a hurtful, destructive, ugly thing that will divide brothers and sisters. Where does it come from? Pride out of control. Well, I should be the leader. Well, I should be in charge. Well, I should have my own ministry. So I'm going to be seditious and attack leadership, and I'm going to bring division, and I'm going to use theology to do it so that no one can argue with me. Wow. Let's take a look at this today. Factions or heresies are all about theology that divides. They bring division over doctrinal issues, and the purpose of factions are meant to split the church, destroy fellowship, and to kill our God-given unity. Most factions are born from the clash of opinions and preferences. When people have a, a, a faction, they, they have an opinion or a preference about something here. It's not such a deep theological issue. Some of them get into deep theological issues. We're going to look at that. But most factions, most splits occur over differences of opinions and preferences of how church should be done. You guys have wilted on me. You're, have I killed you? Okay, so how, how should church be done? How, how should church be structured? And this is where most of our factions come. They come over opinions and preferences about music, about preaching styles, about the order of service, about the flow of the Holy Spirit, about, you know, the interaction of the congregation within worship or the form of church government. All of these things split churches, and if you look out there, we've got more denomination and more churches and more this and more that. It, it, the church of Jesus Christ seems to be so fragmented that we're ineffective, so divided and so starving for unity that we really can't get any traction in the world around us. And most of these things boil down to opinions and preferences. Newsflash. Our opinions and preferences are much less important than the bonds of unity that pride would gladly smash to have it their own way. I'll let you catch up. Pride is what smashes the unity and causes division. Why? Because there's a proud person who's dissentious who wants it their own way, and they're willing to fragment the body of Christ even more to start their own thing, to do their own thing, to draw people away, to split the church, to create a heresy, to create a faction, to draw people to themselves. You know, we read these words in these lists here, and we don't dig deep, but when we dig in deep, we see the, the sinister nature of these things and people will divide the church to have it their own way hey people this is not burger king have it your way you know hold the pickles hold the lettuce no it's not burger king we don't have it our way well you're the pastor you get it your way no i don't if you think that you're out of your you're out of your mind i don't even get to preach what i want to preach 
Do you think I come up with this myself? You, you know, people say, well, you should preach a message on this. Look, if the Holy Spirit don't give me the message, you, you don't want to hear me up here. So the more you climb up the chain of leadership, the less leash you have. And when it comes to, you know, having it our way, we've got to have it God's way. We've got to have it God's way. The church described, the Laodicean church described in the last days in the book of Revelation is the church with itching ears that has to have it their way. They have to have preachers preach what they want to hear, a social message, a, a, you know, a, a woke message, whatever, but they don't want to hear this. They don't want to hear the truth. So what? They split and they roll and they hide and they, they cause division and they make factions and they stir up heresies. It's not about us getting it our way. Uh, so most factions are over little things about opinions and preference, but some of them over, are over genuine heresies, deep theological you know, untruths that divide the body of Christ. And unlike the pettiness of different opinions, these splits are dangerous because wrong theology destroys souls. When you tell a person that's in sin, that the Bible calls sin, that the Bible says this will cost you your soul, and you tell them it's okay, it's an alternate lifestyle, it's a different time, it's a different era, the Bible didn't mean that. When you lie about what the Word of God says and your theology is twisted and you give it to other people, get your neck ready for a millstone because you're making people stumble into hell for eternity. It's not about us having it our way. It's about us giving what the Lord said his way. It's God's truth. It's not our truth. But some factions are over heresies, and heresies are dangerous, and wrong theology is dangerous. We don't just get to believe whatever we want to believe because that has repercussions. There are certain doctrinal issues that should divide the church. You're barely surviving, but I'm just going to go for it. There's certain things that should, there's certain things that have certain, if you believe this, well, I love you, I'm praying for you, but I'm not fellowshipping with you. There are certain things that should divide the church. The divinity of Jesus Christ. If, if you're saying, well, Jesus was just a man, he was just one way, he's not the way. Look, God bless you, I'm praying for you, but I'm not partnering with you. I don't want anything to do with that. If, if you... If you reject the doctrine of salvation and you say, well, there's all roads lead to God, there's many ways to heaven. If it's not grace through faith and not by works, if you don't preach the doctrine of salvation, you can call yourself a church, you can, you can have the prettiest building, you can have the nicest facilities, but uh, th- that's a heresy that I will not partner with. The doctrine of the Trinity, well, you know, uh, it's, just a, it's just a metaphor, it's just this, you know, God is God, and there's only one God, and there's no Father, Son, the Holy. Listen, there are certain doctrines that are foundational, yep. that we have to believe them, otherwise we're, we're not serving the God of the Bible. Doctrines over sexual immorality, over abortion, over the inerrancy of scripture. There are some people that stand behind pulpits in churches, even in our Dutchess County, that believe this is just a collection of stories. I've had preachers tell people that wound up here that, oh, well, we don't really believe this stuff. You don't really believe in Noah's Ark. You don't really believe in the book. You don't really believe all that. It's just stories. What are you doing behind a pulpit? If you don't believe that this is the inerrant, infallible word of God. 
There are certain issues theologically that will divide the church. And I'm sorry, but I am not one of those go-along-to-get-along guys. I got too much to do that I don't have time for it. And people say, well, why don't you go to this church? And why don't you fellowship with this? And, and they're ordaining homosexuals. And they're saying the Bible's not true. And so, I am not going to be part of that to get along with the flow of this world. I'm not doing it. It's a faction. It's a heresy. It will pollute the church and enlarge hell. And we should want nothing to do with it. Those who manufacture these things are wolves. They are overcome by pride. They are full of moral rot. They are the false teachers that the New Testament warned us about. Acts 20, 28 through 30, and I close with this. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, talking to leadership, the shepherd, the church, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, I know that after my departure, listen, Paul knows this is coming when he leaves, that savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Mm. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things. Why? To draw away disciples after themselves. Understand why the proud person engages in factions to destroy unity, to draw people to themselves, to put themselves on a pedestal and become an idol. At this, at, with using falsehoods about scripture, there are certain factions that should divide the church. Most of them are built on preferences and opinions. We need to get over ourselves, but we need to understand wherever there's a church split, wherever there's division, wherever there are those in churches attacking leadership, it is not of the spirit, it's of the flesh. Those factions, those heresies, those uh, dissensions and all of this uh, foolish pride out of control that is driven by selfish ambition. None of it's of God. None of it's for you and I. We should be free from it to be lovers of Christ, lovers of each other, to flow in the unity that Jesus gave us. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, I just thank you this morning for this word. I pray that it would it would root into the hearts of your people. Father, for every mature believer, for every young believer here, that you would give us wisdom and discernment to understand when pride is out of control, how it's gonna manifest itself. If there's any selfish ambition in our own lives, God, we repent of it and ask you to root it out of us. If there's a dissensive spirit where we wanna make division, where we wanna stir up strife, where we wanna draw people to ourselves, God, if there's any of that in full gospel, Center, we ask you to root it out so that we can enjoy the perfect bond of unity Jesus died to give us and we can do exploits for our God. We recognize pride in our own lives, Lord. Help us to rebel against it and help us to embrace humility. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Give him praise this morning.